0: You are listening to the Sermons Podcast from The North Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. For more gospel-focused resources or information about our church, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com. Let me begin this morning by asking you a question. Do you enjoy hearing people's life stories, maybe reading biographies or hearing their testimony and Seeing glimpses of how God works to orchestrate his purposes through people's lives Well this morning we're in our third of four Names of the great King Jesus that were given to us by Isaiah 700 plus years before his birth and as I've been looking at the third of those names it's been helpful for me to get a glimpse of Isaiah and how God worked in just an amazing way to give us a man worthy or able to declare the greatness of this coming king. You see, Isaiah was an expert in the kings of Judah. His prophetic ministry given to him by God was during the reign of four of them. He wrote down all the, the deeds of King Uzziah, From first to last he interacted face to face and brought God's message directly he didn't just know about but brought it directly to King Ahaz and Josiah and somehow King Jotham fit his way in there too he was an expert in human kings which means he knew they were fallible he knew that they were not enough he knew that when he brought them God's Word and their hearts crumpled and met it with unbelief that it was going to be bad for God's people. And he saw that firsthand in many different ways. Isaiah is a very big book. You can read about quite a bit of that. But you see, he wasn't just an expert in the line of Jesus, in the line of human kings. He was also an expert in the greatest king. You're probably familiar, and if you're not, you're in for a treat. Read Isaiah 6. Isaiah saw the one true king, the Lord seated on his throne talk about preparation to announce the birth of the great god king he was in the very throne room of god saw his the folds of his robe overlapping and just filling the place his majesty was so great and he he didn't just see and experience the king he was humbled by the king and he was redeemed and purified by that king so let your hearts rejoice as we hear words from Isaiah today. This was a man prepared by God for this unique mission. Kind of like Esther or Joseph. Just the way his life was orchestrated perfectly fits with this. And I think he actually embodied what this message is calling us to today. He was able to live in the brokenness of his world and hold in tension this great king over all of the universe and rejoice in him. And that's the call of our passage. I'm going to pray that way. And then I'll introduce you to the, to the passage. Would you please join me in pray. Father, Jesus taught us to pray. Hallowed be your name. And that's what we've been about this Advent series. What we're going to be about today. What we're going to be about next week. We need you to hallow, lift up, make great in our minds your name your reputation your character who you are would you help it to connect with our hearts would you help it to pierce our darkness would you help it to help us navigate this broken world that we find ourselves in and would you help it to spur on hope in the coming return your return jesus to set up your perfect reign pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna consider the third name, here are the four, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We're going to try to understand Everlasting Father. Now, it perhaps is a weird title for you. It's strange that Jesus Christ would be called Everlasting Father. In fact, it only occurs in the Bible in Isaiah 9, 6. So on our three-stop journey today, stop number one is going to be considering again, considering afresh the context that this name occurs in Isaiah. So in just a moment, I'm going to read through Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. You can start turning there in your Bibles right now if you'd like to. And I'm going to make a few comments along the way to try to help us understand the context in which this name fits We want to apply it in the same way that Isaiah called us to So we need to understand and consider the context stop one Stop two will be defining the everlasting father defining that name there's confusion Let's just be honest It's it's strange But it's beautiful and wonderful when we kind of kind of get our minds around it and understand What exactly did Isaiah intend? And finally that's going to be the bulk of our sermon and finally We don't want to just walk out of here knowing more. We want to receive the very grace that Isaiah, given by God, intended for these words. We want to have them, we want to receive them, we want to understand God's call for us based on these words. What does he want us to do with Everlasting Father and the other names that are given in this context? So our our plan is, look at the wider passage consider and understand the name and then finally figure out what does it mean for us today and seek by God's grace to walk in light of that so open your Bibles if you haven't already to Isaiah 9 1 to 7 and if you want to grab one of those blue Bibles underneath the chair it's on page 573 or at least 573 of the one that I looked at in the back so I'm going to read and I'm going to give you a couple notes so it'll be a little bit different I'm going to comment on a few things along the way and the first thing I want you to notice before I even start it's important for you to remember the words gloom and anguish you can just see those right away in verse 1 on the page you need to understand this prophecy was written in a time of gloom and anguish it was giving hope to a time of gloom and anguish if you remember back a couple sermons when Pastor Brian Lichty laid this out I Israel was located. It was divided kingdom and the northern section of that kingdom, when this prophecy came, had already had some of their peoples attacked, conquered, and brought into exile. And the rest of the peoples knew bad things were coming. It was a time of gloom and anguish. Look at me at verse 1. Look with me at verse 1. But there will be no gloom. For her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are some of the northernmost parts. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan of Galilee of the nations. Now, as I read verse 2 and 3, take note of all the past tense. This is super significant. Isaiah is writing knowing that Jesus is not coming for some 700 years, but he is so confident that it's going to happen that he writes it in the past tense as if it has already happened. That's what he wants for us today. Jesus has not yet returned, but he wants us to so believe in its certainty and so rejoice in that reality that we can almost think of it as if it has already taken place. Verses 2 and 3. The people who have walked in darkness have seen, past tense, a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. It hasn't happened yet. But it is as if it has. You have multiplied, again past tense, the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. The third of four things that I want to point out as I read. Did you notice how many different occurrences of rejoice and joy were in verse 3? Look back at that. There's four different ones. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You see, Isaiah doesn't just want the people to know it and be confident of it, he wants them to rejoice in it. And this is going to be very important because that's what God wants us to do in light of this passage this morning. Finally, as I read the rest of the passage, Notice how verses 4, 5, and 6 all begin. They begin with the word for. Listen carefully for that as I read it. They begin with the word for because it's giving us three different reasons for rejoicing in this reality. And the most, the the climactic one in verse 6 is the birth of the king for the yoke of his burden. And the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian this is talking about decisive supernatural God-given deliverance second reason for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire we're gonna talk about this aspect next week when we consider the Prince of Peace this is talking about the peace that he will bring And finally, for to us a child is born, or even more literally, has been born. To us a son is given, or has been given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this keep your Bible open we're gonna come back here several different times but we should just Freshly consider isaiah's aim with this passage is to stir up hope and rejoicing in a people that's experiencing gloom and anguish To know that there is a king who will come to reign and his reign will be glorious and We should rejoice in that reality too. We've seen him come the first time and he is coming again but let me just ask you where are you experiencing gloom and anguish in this fallen world? Where is that coming across your screen or tempting to pull you off into it, into places of sadness or despair? Or where are you just saying to yourself, this is just not right? Is God, through His Word, helping you to rejoice in His reality and His return? That's what this text is about. That's the gift he wants to give you this morning. Lean in and ask for his help. Let's seek to define the name Everlasting Father. What does that mean? We're gonna begin by trying to clear up some confusion. We're gonna start with what this name does not mean. Okay? Everlasting Father. First, this name is not a contradiction. If you're looking carefully at the text, look at me at verse 6. If you're looking carefully at the text and you are a very literal person, you might say to yourself, how can a child who is born be called an everlasting father? Just think about that. Children are not fathers and those who are born are not everlasting. Something's not right there. Okay, this is not meant to be strictly literal. This is a name. This is a title. It's doing something different. As we heard last week, and if you didn't hear it, you can go back and listen. The wonder of Christmas is that the eternal God was born. And so many different things about his coming baffle us. What is more, the name Father is not meant to be literal. He had no offspring in the sense that we normally think of a father, Many spiritual offspring through his sacrifice. It's not literal, it's descriptive. People are meant to look at this king and his reign and say, Whoa, that is fatherly. We'll talk more about that in a second. The second thing, especially I think for Christians, which is difficult to get their minds around, those who are Trinitarian, those that believe what the Bible teaches, that there are three distinct persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all God, all distinct persons, they can trip over this. How is the Son, the second person, Jesus Christ, how is God the Son a Father? Is he the Father? No, he's not the Father. Again, this name is describing that this great king will display the Father. He will make him known. He will help his greatness, which has been revealed from Genesis through this point, throughout the whole scriptures. He will make known the greatness of God our Father through his rule. Does that make you think of anybody? Who made the Father known? That helps us move to what this name does mean. In John 1.18, the Apostle John says, no one has ever seen God. And what he's speaking about there is no one has ever laid their eyes on God the Father. No one has ever seen God, and it actually has a semicolon there. That's the end of a thought, and it's moving on to the next one. The only God who is at the Father's side, who is that? The second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. You see, there's this coming King that's going to perfectly make the Father known. They didn't have any category for that. But when He stepped onto their soil, they got it they saw it or it, or at least it was presented to them and it's presented to us in the four Gospels and we can see it too You see the name everlasting father is not a fallible Sinful imperfect human father. It's not even the perfect version of a father That is a human father the idea is that this king's reign will perfectly display God the father He will govern and serve his people just as God has been doing throughout history. This king will be the everlasting father. And if you read through the gospels, you do not get an image of a fallen or imperfect father, or especially our modern day negative view of fathers that are inept, self-focused, lazy, unwise, out of touch, and easily outwitted by their children. Just read the gospels. Is Jesus outwitted by anybody? No. The experts of the law shut their mouths. He's amazing. Is is he ever self-focused? No. Is he ever inept? Never. His disciples were inept in the boat, and he's like, I got this. Be still. Whew. Do not think of an imperfect father. When you think of Christ and yet bring your versions your experiences of an imperfect father to Jesus. None of us have perfect fathers. All of us have some sort of challenges with fathers and he is the perfect one that we can pour out our heart to and say help me understand. Help me appreciate. Help me see rightly that you perfectly display a perfect father. Rework my categories so I marvel at you. We also don't exactly think of fatherhood perhaps in the way that the Bible does. So I want to give you two examples right from Isaiah that I think are forefront in Isaiah's mind when he thinks of this perfect father. He is a father or a king with fatherly discipline. We may not think of that right away. And he is a perfect king with fatherly compassion. Both of those are right in our passage in Isaiah. Please look with me at Isaiah 9, verse 1. Back to the beginning of the passage. But there will be no gloom for her, was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali you need to understand that the whole book of Isaiah is talking about God's judgment and these words he brought into contempt is God's active leadership of his people into punishment into exile he was active in that. Why would God do that? Well, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 teaches us about the discipline of our perfect God the Father. My son, do not despise the, dis- the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in Whom he delights His aim is that his children Would come to their senses and repent You see this discipline is at the end of a lot of steadfast love I Mean just think of the 40 years in the wilderness where he expressed his steadfast love certainly correction certainly instruction at the end of that time in Deuteronomy He gave 53 verses, you can read them all in Deuteronomy 28, 53 verses of explicit warnings about the consequences that would come if his people continued in rebellion. And then they just carried out through history. You could almost read that chapter, have it next to you in your Bible as a key, and just keep reading, it. there it happened. And they didn't listen, they rebelled, and there it happened. And they didn't listen, they rebelled, and there it happened. happened. And one of those final ones was exile. And even there, there was hope that if they would turn to God, He would bring them back. God is perfect and just. He is long suffering. He is kind. Yet He loves His people too much to celebrate their rebellion or rejoice in their wrongdoing. He is a good Father. The same is true of Jesus. You cannot read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and think that Jesus only accepts and approves of his children. His love is too strong to uh, to allow his children to believe lies or remain in slavery to sin. Rather, he models correction and discipline, which was perfectly calibrated to each individual and each situation. Let me just repeat that, which is perfectly calibrated to each individual and each situation. Let me just give you a couple examples. The rich young ruler seems so promising. He's coming to Jesus to ask about eternal life. And yet, Jesus, in his perfect fatherly discipline, seeks to correct him. He's not just like, well, I know you love money and things more than anything else, I'll just pat you on the back and say you're okay. No, in love and compassion, he says to him, go and sell all you have. We don't know if those words landed on him and later, he rejected all that and ran to Christ. But regardless, Jesus didn't leave him in that because that would have meant eternal punishment for him, treasuring things above Christ. Or what about Peter? Peter actually rebuked Jesus. I'm not sure that that lands on us like it should. Imagine pulling Jesus aside and saying, I've got a really strong word for you, Jesus. Yikes. And what does Jesus do? He has a fairly strong word right back to him, perfectly fit for that situation. And he did not mince words. He said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, But the things of man. He publicly rebuked a man who would be a pillar of the church, the man that cannot get Christ wrong or his mission. He did not want his disciples who were overlooking to say, well, the cross is not that big of a deal. We don't need that. That needed a firm rebuke or consider sparks flying with the Pharisees because they were blind guides leading his people astray. He had woes for them because he wanted them to wake up to the impending judgment. And we could give you so many different words of correction. Gentle words and strong words. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he had perfect fatherly correction, perfect fatherly discipline. But you know what's the most amazing thing about Jesus? His greatest encounter with discipline was taking the discipline of his people. He didn't just deal it out. He personally experienced the full weight of the wrath of God. He entered into the discipline of all who would trust in him. He is so amazing. No other event reveals God's discipline and displays the heart of Jesus more accurately than the cross. There he became the propitiation for our sins. That is the discipline bearing substitute in place of all who would trust in him. Jesus is worthy of the title Father because his fatherly discipline is extraordinary and displays. The father but it's also mingled with his fatherly compassion you can look back at the second half of Isaiah 9 1 and there's kind of this interesting hidden reality that shows up in in sort of an obscure place in the Gospels in Matthew 4 but it's amazing in Isaiah 9 1 we had just read that Zebulun and Naphtali remember I told you those northern tribes of northern Israel were brought into contempt but the second half of Isaiah 9.1 says this, But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. So he is making glorious those places that he has brought into contempt. He did not fold his arms, turn away, leave, forsake his people because they deserved it they did deserve it and we deserve it too he chose in compassion to go to them in their darkness to walk among them to become their freedom and it shows up in the tiniest details the tiniest details Those northern sections of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali, show up in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4, 13 and 14. Right away, as Jesus begins his ministry, it says in Matthew 4, 13, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken to the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he goes on to quote the passage that I just read to you. Well, what's the the big deal about that? He remembered for 700 plus years that this was the first people to experience his wrath. And where does he show up and shine his light and walk around on their soil first? In these regions. You talk about compassion being in every corner of his being. Even where he chooses to begin his ministry is full of compassion. But that's not all. As he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, do we see more compassion than that of Jesus? Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. What an amazing sight of the father because psalm one o three thirteen says as a father shows compassion to his children show the so the lord shows compassion to those who fear him that's our god or consider his healing of lepers it's probably hard for us to get back into the historical context of that but People would stand far away from lepers. They were ostracized from community. Nobody wanted to bump into them. Nobody wanted to touch them. Nobody wanted to not only be infected with them, but just have to stay away from God's presence because they had touched them. What does Jesus do? In Mark 1, right off the bat in his ministry, as as it's detailed in Mark. Mark 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. This is what it says about Jesus. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. That was perhaps the first human touch this man had received in a long time. And said to him, I will be clean. You talk about perfectly fatherly compassion, perfect fatherly compassion. It's all over Christ's ministry. Just open up the gospels and look at it. This is the one that perfectly displayed the father. This is the coming king. We've seen him and he's coming again. Do you hunger for this type of leadership? Tell God that right now. Do you stumble over this type of leadership? Those words, that that aspect of perfectly fatherly leadership? Again, tell him. Interact with him about it. Seek his help. Because this fatherly leadership was not just then. The second half of this name, Everlasting Father, is everlasting. It's not just here and gone. It's not like King Uzziah who lived for about 52 years and then he was done. This is forever. It won't stop. He won't be replaced. There will be no more inaugurations, no regime changes, no state funerals, no more elections and no more anxieties about Ooh, who's gonna be next. There will be no end to this perfect King's reign. Look at Isaiah 9 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. There we see again this perfect fatherly love. It's perfect fatherly leadership. There's no fear of change for the worst. No drifting from the truth. Only justice, only righteousness. For how long? From this time forth and forevermore. And this truth is especially important for us today. We're still waiting for his return. We experience the gloom and anguish of our fallen world and he has been given the name Everlasting Father. You know, we have been given a prophecy just like Isaiah has to cling to in Revelation 11 verse 15. You can listen carefully as I read this, or jot it, if you're taking notes. Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, "The kingdom of the world, that is the broken world that we live in right now, has become." Notice, it's exactly like Isaiah. It's talking about as if it's already done. Because it so surely will be done. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Now you need to know that passage goes on to talk about those that would rebel, and the wrath to come, and the time for the dead to be judged, as well as the rewarding of the servants. And prophets and saints and those who fear his name, both small and great. So there will be a day when the fatherly discipline is fully carried out on all the inhabitants of this world. And you need to be ready for that day. All your chips, all your hope needs to be in Christ to have taken your punishment or it will fall on you. And then he will begin the reign forever. I was just recently interacting with some people about heaven and thinking about this. And I do think we struggle with the reality that, is it going to be good? Like, even the good things here are only good for so long. You know, you can only eat so many Oreos. Is it going to be good? One of my favorite verses in the scriptures is Isaiah 2.7, and I think it directly addresses that reality and speaks about this forever rule. What's it going to be like, Jesus? What's your reign going to be like? In Ephesians 2.7, I hear those pages flipping. Thanks, that's hard work. Ephesians 2.7, it says, so that in the coming ages, that's the forevermore, he might show, that's God the Father, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. So what's heaven going to be like? It's going to be like the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness cascading cascading and cascading and cascading and cascading and cascading forevermore upon us as he displays the greatness of this, of the immeasurable riches of his grace. Wow. Forever forever. That's what heaven is like. So how does, how does Isaiah, how does God, through Isaiah, want us to apply these realities, especially this name, Everlasting Father? Well, I think what He wants us to do is to live in the realities of our anguish and gloom, with hope in the coming of this reign of this king how do we do that let me try to give you some real practical ways and they all start with R as long as I remember to start them all with R first Jesus is the great king of the universe and if you are not sincerely and truly, by his grace, kneeling in submission to him, you need to repent. You will not outlast an everlasting king, you will not outsmart the God who knows all things. All of us will stand before his judgment seat. And this is not just like sticking the Jesus bumper sticker on your car, wearing the t-shirt, fitting in with the family as a nice person. This is sincerity of heart. You can read Psalm 2, and it really gets at that reality. We need to run to him in mercy and truly submit to him, surrender to him. That repentance is a gift. So you can seek him for that gift. But we must repent and we must live lives that keep repenting underneath the reign of that king and for those of us that are continuing to trust jesus that are continuing to come to him once we begin that journey here's what we need to do when we experience the gloom and anguish and i don't say this at all like somebody who knows what to do i am in the battle very much with you in these three things We must resist being carried away into despondency and despair. It can happen in all sorts of different places. You know, just like leaving Fox News on for most of the day or whatever. Or just even reading the newspaper. Or looking at the brokenness in our own lives. Or looking at the anxieties and the things that we very much need to take care of. We can easily be Overwhelmed, and our hearts can be tempted and even drawn into places of despair, sadness, like hopelessness. This, There's no hope. What we need to do is evaluate the thinking in our brains and parse out, yes, this is hard, but it's not true that it's hopeless. It's not true that it will cont- continue forever. It's not true that whatever. We need to evaluate and we need to rightly see and stand against the word that our word is resist being drawn into despondency and despair and we need to reframe Preach to ourselves the truth So we see this when this actually happened in Israel's history The book of Lamentations was written and you talk about utter devastation gloom and anguish. It's all over over those several chapters. And in the middle, in the middle of that, the author says, but this I call to mind. This I bring back into my head. This I combat all the things that are trying to draw me away in despair. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the last few months, the steadfast love of the Lord has been especially sweet to me. May it grow in sweetness for you. May you resist and reframe. And finally, may God help you rejoice in the circumstances that are hard. I can remember several years ago, I was laying on the couch preparing for back surgery in a little while, all sorts of pain, couldn't couldn't sleep in the middle of the night, at least at one point. And I was singing. Pastor Dan reminded us this week, as pastors, of songs in the night. There is something extremely powerful about singing and rejoicing in the Lord, even in the midst of very hard things. It does something supernatural in our hearts and helps us carry on and lifts our spirits. All of these things, finally, are are to be in reliance upon God. We need His shepherding to resist being carried away into despondency, to have his word to be able to reframe our circumstances and to be called, caught up by his spirit to rejoice in who he is. This morning we have people that would love to pray for you as you walk in this battle. I would as well. Would you please pray with me? Great God, thank you for your perfect fatherly leadership we experience it as good and in the places where we experience it as so hard we come to you and ask for your help would you please shepherd your people thank you that you have come as our shepherd Lord God it's our privilege in this Christmas season to sing many songs of rejoicing Would you help these truths to land on our hearts? Would you help us to bring and pour out our souls to you as our perfect Father in Jesus, as the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who brings us to the Father and allows us to bring our hearts to him? Would you help us to rejoice in your steadfast love? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sermons Podcast from The North Church. For more information about our church or resources to help you deepen your walk with Christ, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com.